Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the fallout from this week's local elections and Theresa May's failure to sell her customs union plan. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Whitehall editor, James Blitz, Chief Political Correspondent, Jim Picard, and Deputy Opinion Editor, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Britain went to the polls this week for the latest round of local elections. The results were something of a mixed lot. Labour made some gains, but only one significant council pick up in Plymouth. They failed to meet their own expectations of taking some of the Conservative strongholds in London. Elsewhere, we saw the total collapse of the UK Independence Party and a surprising revival of the Liberal Democrats. So what does this all tell us about the state of the country? Well, it seems that Britain is still in stalemate and there's little hope of any parties making a big breakthrough in the near future. Jim Picard, let's begin by just looking at the election results. Who was it a good night for? So it wasn't an amazing uh, night for anybody. Um, it was a pretty good night for the Lib Dems because they took the borough of Richmond. So they had a little Philip there. It was a pretty bad day for Labour. It was an appalling day for UKIP. And for the Tories, although nothing sensational went their way, they can be really pleased that they've hardly lost anything. And outside London, they've had a small swing in their favour. So the spin lines we've got from each of the parties, Labour's is that they had a solid performance, Jeremy Corbyn said. They're very pleased they picked up Plymouth. The Conservatives, their line is that, well, we've been in power for eight years and we're still picking up councillors. The Lib Dems is, the yellow bird is taking flight again. And UKIP's spin line is, well, we're quite like the Black Death. Miranda Green, what was the most significant result of the night for you? I can probably guess what this one might be. Well, I don't know, actually. I mean, it is true that the Lib Dems not expiring is quite a story because a lot of people had completely sort of given up on the party's much derided hashtag Lib Dem fight back. But here it seems to be taking on some sort of vestige of reality. I do think that although this idea of stalemate, i.e. the Labour Party can't break into Tory swing vote areas or indeed into swing vote in areas where they're already strong and vice versa, i.e. Corbyn can't beat May, May can't beat Corbyn. That is the main lesson of it. But I think the Labour failure to break through in London and topple those Tory councils, particularly Barnet, is extremely interesting because it may be showing the limits of a momentum-led strategy for Labour, which is hugely significant for national politics. 
So, Jim, let's just talk about these London results because Momentum, which is the grassroots outriders for Jeremy Corbyn, and we should remind our listeners they are not the same thing. There are different things from the Momentum approach and the Labour approach, of course, the two are symbiotic. That Momentum was talking up, taking Barnet Council, which has been Conservative for quite a long time, but it was only two seats for Labour to gain. In Wandsworth, which has been Conservative since 1978, they took the MP there in last year's election and they were quite hopeful. And Westminster, for some reason, they thought they might be able to take that as well. And much to the surprise of, I think, some people in Labour and delight of the Conservatives, they took none of them. Exactly. So when we started this conversation, we talked about nothing radical had happened. And in the words of Theresa May, nothing has changed. (laughs) And actually, although there is a sort of stalemate and everyone's in the trenches, let's not forget that the Conservative Party is running the country with the help of the DUP. And they do have about 9,000 councillors and Labour only has about 6,000 councillors. So if you have any election where nothing changes, it means the Tories have done just great because they're not losing ground at all. And I think what happened with Labour is that expectation management was a disaster. And the Corbynistas will blame people like us for fanning those flames. And yes, we went to a Robert Hayward presentation a few months ago. He's the uh, former Tory MP who's a sort of master sophologist of local elections. And he sort of set the hair running a bit in terms of Westminster and Wandsworth being in play. But to be fair to Robert, he picks up that intel from people on the ground. People in the Labour Party were genuinely saying, Barnet as well, Hillington, these were all conceivable. And people in momentum, people on the ground in Labour were getting really excited about the prospect of taking two or three of these councils. And they thought that taking one or two would be a bit disappointing. Taking one would be a bit flat. Taking none, I've not heard from anyone. So uh, expectations got out of control. Um, I've had the spin this morning from uh, Corbyn's team and they point out that it's still possibly the best London performance that the Labour Party's had since 1971. They point out that in Westminster they got 41% of the vote against the Tories, 42. They claim that in Wandsworth they were only 350 votes behind the Tories. But we all know that 350 votes can be quite a lot depending on how they are dispersed. Miranda, this is the point we've been talking about, is the role of momentum in this because they've been Jeremy Corbyn's secret weapon. These 37,000 troops growing at about 500 away to are all right behind JC and uh, go out and campaign for him. These big rally days, very active on social media. They've even got their own media ecosystem with blogs and uh, websites putting forward very pro-Corbyn messages. This was seen to be as the thing that really helped Labour in last year's general election. I think that was clearly true. Their ground operation was a lot better than the Tories. But as we've been talking about this morning, the thing that does strike is no matter how good your ground game is, no matter how much better it is than the Conservatives, you can't beat that national message, which is Labour's had a very bad couple of months, whether it's the anti-Semitism round, which played a big role in Barnet, which has one of the highest Jewish populations in the country, whether it's over the Russia Skripal attack, whether it's over the Syria bombing, or it's whether the fact that Corbyn is just sometimes not a great leader of Labour and often doesn't capitalise on things. You know, on the other side, the Tories have had a dreadful time with the Home Secretary resigning, we'll talk about later, and Windrush. The sense is the ground campaigning is great, but it's no makeup for having a good leadership. 
I think that's very much part of the story. And I think what will be interesting to think about in the next few days and weeks, actually, is whether this is the moment where momentum starts to lose some of its mystique for the media as well. Because, you know, a lot of people, including us, including most of the media, were quite wrong-footed in the 2017 general election. And then we had to learn about this new politics where they use social media in a very sophisticated way, where they kind of segment off sections of the voting public, not least uh, younger voters, and target them very efficiently with Tory-hating messages that cut through and work. But actually... You still can't win elections unless you're appealing to very more people than those who already agree with your message. And this may be the moment when somebody in the Labour Party wins that internal argument. Also, I have to say, I think it could, one hopes, if you're of my point of view, be quite a significant moment in the internal conversations in the Labour Party over Brexit. Because in those places in London, for example, it's not just about the disasters of the anti-Semitism in Labour not being dealt with properly, the reaction to the Skripal poisoning, etc. It's also to do with dissatisfaction about the way that the Labour front bench is handling Brexit and not opposing the government enough on hard Brexit or, you know, that's the shorthand, but not standing up for the Remainers. So where that goes inside Labour is quite interesting too. Yeah, just to pick up on the momentum point, I think... You know, what happened in the first 18 months of momentum, remember they were set up in the September of 2015 after Corbyn had already won the leadership, and they were depicted as by a lot of MPs, including Tom Watson, who called them a rabble, and the media persistently predicted them as a sort of sort of crazed lefty, sort of often one, not really in, in touch with the real world. And we were forced to eat our words last year when Labour made those electoral gains. But I think a lot of the media then overcompensated by saying it was the brilliance of these young people in red t-shirts going from door to door in places like Derby North and Canterbury that swung it. And I was always a little bit sceptical about that because that's only ever part of it. And I think a lot of those 30 games last summer were just won because generally people like the message of money being flung into the NHS and education and tuition fees and everything else. Yeah, and, the manifesto was popular. The manifesto I mean... was really popular. And where Momentum guys are really brilliant is online. Their messaging online is really strong and successful. But I am still doubtful about the teenagers on the doorstep. Call me cynical. The Tory message online has obviously got better as well since last year because it was absolutely appalling in last year's election. They're still way behind where Labour and Momentum are, but I think that's certainly a factor too. You know, for what it's worth, Jim and I, we've both been out with Momentum. And when you're out with them, they're very friendly, they're very enthusiastic folks. They're not all young. There's a much more diverse than you often read about in the media. But at the end of the day, they're Labour activists. They're knocking on doors. They've got their clipboards. There's not some kind of big revolutionary thing. There's just a lot of them there, essentially. They all seem to be either 20 years younger than me or 20 years older than me. There's a definite two generations. <laughs> That's right. That's very true. But also it is this thing of preaching to the choir, you know. And if you're going to look forward to the next general election, you've got to realise that you can't win an election without winning over the swing voters. And, and if key... you're repellent, you're sending them into the arms of the opposite team. Yeah, and the key point that James cleverly made this morning, he's the vice chairman of the Conservative Party, is that the one place where Momentum didn't do its unseat campaign with Owen Jones was Plymouth. That's the one council that they've won. Now, what I think after the London elections is the most interesting set of results is probably two places right bang in the middle of England, Miranda, which is Derby and Nuneaton, which have the dubious title of political bellwethers. And these are the kind of seats that sophologists love to look at to show which way the wind is blowing, where the momentum in a different kind is. Both of those councils swung to the Conservatives. Now, that would suggest the Conservatives, as Jim was saying earlier, are doing pretty well, but it's 
also an example of exactly the kind of places the Conservatives can now do quite easily. So it's actually that strategy from last year, which is to ignore the metropolitan areas and basically hope their core vote holds up and focus on the more provincial Brexit-supporting rural parts of the country to pick up votes from Labour where the voters are just disenfranchised with Corbyn, with Labour's position over Brexit. So that strategy actually seems to be working just a year late. Yeah, it's really interesting actually because it's this whole blue-collar conservatism which has obviously benefited again today from the collapse of UKIP and it does show a potential there for the Conservative Party to have a winning strategy next time. I do agree with you about that, particularly because if you look at the areas where Labour is strong, like London, if the Tories can hang on to those areas and pick up areas like Derby and Nuneaton, Labour would have to be compensating so much, you know, with its strength in inside London, etc., and picking up all of those seats to be in the game and to be even kind of contesting who could form a government next time. And let's face it, next time we might still be in the territory of who can form a government, not who can win an overall majority of the House of Commons. Yeah, you take Nuneaton, which is a really key swing voter it was in the past. It's also the birthplace of my father, although that doesn't really give me any special insights into it at all. But I went there in 2015 ahead of the general election and I was in the pub and I chatted to a whole family where the man was the son of a miner. I think he himself was a former miner. His wife was the daughter of a miner. And all three of them were voting Tory. And that's still that unanswered question Miranda was talking about of those blue-collar voters who were really turned off by Corbyn's Labour. Because my thought is essentially Theresa May is in a holding pattern. I think we all agree that, that she is there just to get the government over the Brexit line, try and get a deal and get us out of the EU. You know, she's not going to make big electoral gains. That was proven last year. So it really looks to who is going to replace her and what their strategy is going to be and I think my reading of what's happened I don't know if you agree with me Miranda is that basically if the Tories next leader is just a couple of paces to the left of where she is not in a big way but just a bit more open to the kind of metropolitan voters then they can do that dual appeal and that's your route to getting a majority by speaking to the non-Eatons and to the Battersea seats and you know they did well in Battersea in these local elections although they lost the seat last time they did well in Nuneaton this time. I think Brexit hugely complicates that calculation though. I broadly would agree with you were it not the fact that the cabinet as a whole doesn't know which way to jump on Brexit and on the closeness or otherwise of our relationship with the EU after we leave and also whether all of that will have been resolved by the time we get in general election. If Brexit was a thing that was passed by then, if it was water under the bridge, the strategy you describe would probably work. But will they still be pulled two ways? And also, you know, this wonderful quote this morning from UKIP comparing themselves to the Black Death in the sense that they changed history and now they're dormant. If you get some great Brexit betrayal narrative starting up again, then you start to possibly see the Tory vote splitting off again to the right. I think, Jim, that's one of the most striking things is, you know, UKIP didn't do that well in last general election at all. Their vote share went way down. This time they've been pretty much extinct from the country. And their voters, as we saw last year, some of them are going back to the Conservatives, some of them are going back to Labour too. So again, it's that sort of return of two-party politics. But that does broadly seem to be helping the Conservatives more than Labour. Yeah, as far as we can work out today, that seems to have been feeding into the uh, swing towards the Tories outside London. I mean, just going back to the point on Brexit and your point, Seb, in terms of 
where the Tories need to be at the next election. You talk about whether maybe they need to be a little bit more liberal or whatever. I think we keep forgetting that that manifested last year promised so much jam to everyone. It was a real giveaway Labour manifesto. Corbyn's manifesto. Corbyn's manifesto was all about showering people with money. And if you go back to 97 and and Labour and Blair and their three elections, I mean, a bit of it was that Blair had all the charisma. But remember, they were showering money on people as well. People really like money spent, especially if it seems to be coming for free. They like money being spent on the NHS and education and tuition fees and schools. And I think the Tories, uh, a lot of them think they need to sort of solve some of those areas where they can at least appear to be meeting a bit of that challenge. But with Brexit posing dark clouds on the horizon in terms of potential economic impact, will there be any money to pay for that stuff? Nobody really knows. And there they have a real challenge. Jim, you're so right to raise this question of sort of tax and spend and austerity and how that impacts next time as well. Because we just don't know which way people will jump. As we were all poring over the result of the 2017 election, which surprised everyone so much, there was a sort of consensus, yes, well, this was the moment when austerity came back to bite the Conservative Party. But even though, I mean, we had a piece this week from Matt Singh, the polling analyst, saying that, you know, hostility to austerity and a feeling that it's gone too far is now across the spectrum, even Tory supporters. But will that actually make them vote for the Labour Party? And they've addressed it in some areas. So, for example, they've offered the fairly big pay rise for NHS workers, over a million of them. But what everyone seems to be forgetting is that Britain still owes £1.7 trillion. The Tories have done too well at boasting that they've reduced the deficit that quite people so, don't realise so, yeah. the position we're in. And I was talking to a shadow minister this week who said his fear was that his party would get in just at the point where the economy crashes because of Brexit, people wake up to how much money we owe and that could destroy Labour for a generation. That was his fear. Very briefly, Jim, last question. Where does this leave Mr Corbyn now? Corbyn is safe. He's 100% safe. In previous years, we might have bothered to make some phone calls to MPs to say, hmm, is your leader in trouble? Are you going to topple him? I think we've learnt by now that Jeremy Corbyn can't be toppled by mortal forces within the PLP. You know, they're licking their wounds, they're feeling a bit sore, but the Corbyn project carries on for now. The local elections were not the only big political story this week. Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, resigned late on Sunday evening to be replaced by Sajid Javid, the hardcore Thatcherite Housing Secretary who has hopped into Theresa May's old job. His arrival was an effort to curtail criticism of the Prime Minister over the Windrush scandal, but it has already had big implications for her Brexit strategy. At a crucial Cabinet meeting on Wednesday, things did not quite go Mrs May's way. George Parker, let's just begin with the Amber Rudd story, which feels like quite a long time ago now as we're recording, on Friday, do you think she had to go? I think in the end she did. So there was more and more evidence coming out that she didn't really have a grip on her department. She seemed to be oblivious to the fact that there were targets for removing people from the country. She'd even written a letter to the Prime Minister talking about these targets. So it seemed inexplicable that she told a committee of MPs that wasn't the case. She decided to try and buy herself some breathing space over the weekend. Um, she said she was going to make another statement to the House of Commons, another apology. And I think in the end, it was just becoming completely unsustainable that she was having to keep coming back to the House of Commons with a different story. And I think in the end, she saw so much documentary evidence that she should have known she decided she had to quit. I think that right over the weekend, there was a bit of a paper trail chase going on at the Home Office yeah. where they were looking to see what had or had not been said. And I think Amber Rudd was sort of informed that you might have misled the House on other occasions. And I think you could see the sense from her that 
if she stayed, it was not going to be this battle. It was going to be another battle and another battle. And eventually, Amber Rudd was a human shield for the Prime Minister. She has very different politics to Theresa May, but she took that job to essentially protect her legacy and continue it. And really, she couldn't do that anymore. I mean, I think Theresa May would have been very keen to see Amber Rudd stay. As you say, she had a human shield property to her, and we're told that it was entirely Amber Rudd's decision. She wasn't pushed by the Prime Minister. And actually, when she stood up in the House of Commons on Wednesday at Prime Minister's Question Time to pay tribute to Sajid Javid and wish him good luck in his new job, there was a real roar of support, I think, not just on the Tory benches for Amber Rudd, actually, because they people felt she'd tried to do a decent job in what many people in the House of Commons regard as an almost impossibly dysfunctional department. One of the things I have been wondering is, is it time to split up the Home Office, do you think? Because the immigration brief is so big and is about to get even bigger. And that's normally the thing that seems to sink Home Secretaries if you look back to the end of the Labour years when there were scandals over data and borders and visas and then more recently with Theresa May and Brodie Clark and then upcoming now with all the Brexit preparations that is there actually a case to say that the whole immigration and borders thing should be taken out and have a totally different government department with a Secretary of State given there's going to be a lot more control going to the UK government over immigration and borders come Brexit day? Well there might be a case for that and of course the Home Office has been split before quite recently um, after uh, John Reid, the former Labour Home Secretary, said it wasn't fit for purpose. That was specifically over problems in the immigration part of the Home Office. They responded by splitting off the justice elements of the Home Office to a new Ministry of Justice. So you've already lost part of it. So there could be a case for it. I think the other thing you should say is that the Home Office is structured so that immigration is almost a self-contained policy within the Home Office. And in the past, you've had substantial ministers doing the immigration brief, including people like Damien Green or James Brokenshire. And the question has to be asked, where has the immigration minister... Caroline Noakes, in case you didn't know, been throughout this whole saga. I think that is part of the problem. I think, I think Amber Rudd will feel justifiably let down, not just by her officials, but also by her deputy, Caroline Noakes, who didn't really get to grips with this and give her the information she needed to go to the Parliament to give them the right information. Just briefly, James Bliss, finally on the Amber Rudd thing, do you think it's fair to say that she was maybe a bit let down by the civil service in this instance, or was it her own failing? I think to some degree it was her own failing because one of the tactical mistakes she made at an early stage of the crisis was to blame her own department for things that had gone wrong. She came up with that first phrase in the House of Commons about how they had were too focused on numbers and not on individuals. That would have irritated people. And then she went on to say that there weren't any targets when in fact there were. And I think what Amber Rudd was ultimately in this crisis, she was the victim of some very aggressive leaking by senior Home Office officials. I mean, the second of the leaks that was given to The Guardian, a direct memo from the Home Secretary to the Prime Minister, is at the alpha level of leaks. And why was that happening? It was because at a critical moment she'd actually turned on her own department. That's such a dangerous thing to do. You you are not going to be able to keep control of the information flow if you do that. So, although I think standing back, she is a victim of the hostile environment policy of Theresa May, It was a casebook study in how not to handle a crisis by a cabinet minister. Absolutely. And then, George, we looked forward to Sajid Javid, who really was the only possible person Theresa May could have put in that job. When you looked around the cabinet table, there's a bit of chatter about Michael Gove going in, you know, a liberal reformer who would have certainly gone and shaken up Mm. the Home Office. But given what happened with the Windrush crisis, putting the first Secretary of State to represent a great office from an ethnic minority was a big move by Theresa May. But Sajid Javid has very different policies to Theresa May. He's much more of the Amber Rudd liberal conservative and he's not loyal to Theresa May at all. So it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out on immigration policy. 
Yes, indeed. He's obviously on the right of the Conservative Party in terms of being a free marketeer of Thatcherite, but also quite libertarian on questions of immigration. And of course, Sajid Javid said that he was part of that sort of group of children who came in with immigrants. In his case, parents came from Pakistan. So you're right, he has a different policy agenda to Theresa May and he owes Theresa May nothing. And you're now in a situation which actually is quite a precarious one for Theresa May, where all the holders of the great offices of state don't like Theresa May, they don't share her policy views and in some respects they hold her in contempt. So you've got Sajid Javid, who Theresa May would have quite happily sacked after the... 27 elections. I think they briefed that out, if I well, recall. Indeed. Had she won the majority she was expecting. Boris Johnson, who you know has no time for Theresa May whatsoever. And Philip Hammond, again, someone that, that the Mayites were letting it be known would have been sacked had she won that election. So those are the three people that hold the highest offices of state. So Theresa May looks increasingly isolated there. And I think this will manifest itself as we go through the autumn, as the Home Office starts to draw up a new policy on immigration from the EU. And I think, like Amber Rudd, Sajid Javid will be looking to introduce as liberal as possible a migration regime from the EU to make sure that industry and business, the City of London, have the workers they need. If listeners are interested in that, there's a very good FT editorial on that this week, <laughs> explaining about the things Mr Javid could do if he wanted to break with Theresa May's policy. But it's going to be quite difficult, James, for him to do that because Theresa May is a backseat driver at the Home Office. She was there for six years. She knows the department and she was successful because she had complete control over that department through her advisors. So even if Mr Javid wants to, you know, take a different, more liberal approach, um, you know, because I think the way he explained it is that he wants control but he wanted to be compassionate as well, which is sort of a big mark away from Theresa May's hostile environment. Yeah, that is true. I think, as George has said, uh, the, the key the thing that's important about his appointment now is the government still hasn't set out what the forward-leaning policy is going to be on EU migration. I mean, what Amber Rand had done, and actually she'd done quite well, was deal with the question of the 3.2 million EU nationals who are in the country at the moment. Now, some listeners, especially European nationals, may disagree with that. But actually, the British have got a very clear programme on giving these people settled status. And that's the good news. What's been left blank is the policy we're going to have post-2019 on um, allowing EU nationals into the country. And I think, as George says... He's in a very strong position now to shape that in a more liberal way. And the way that's been set out, in fact, by people like William Hague, for instance, which is basically that people should be allowed to come to the country if they have an offer of a job. And, and we should definitely give preferential access to EU nationals over non-EU. So it is actually a very important change because it's harder for her, I think, now to push him around. It's much more difficult when you've lost a cabinet minister in a crisis and then you bring in another one as prime minister to push that person around. She's not going to be able to have another home secretary in the space of six months, nine months, however long we think she's got. So I think he is in a, a much stronger position. And I think that position we saw very rapidly on Wednesday, which was this crucial cabinet subcommittee meeting. This is all very insider baseball, but it is important. So try and bear with us that this committee is deciding what the government's Brexit strategy is going to look like, particularly with regards to our old favourite topic, the customs union, and whether the government wants to go for one or two options. The first one is Theresa May's favourite new customs partnership, the NCP, as it's called around Westminster. This is a very very convoluted system where the UK would essentially collect tariffs coming into the UK that are destined towards the EU and then refund the tariffs back to the EU. Whether it's technically possible, no one knows, but it's certainly unlike the EU would like it. The other option is maximum facilitation or max fac in Westminster lingo. This is essentially having a hard border but doing 
everything possible to make sure in Ireland there is no border infrastructure. Those are the two things on the Cabinet. They were both put before that crucial meeting, James, on Wednesday. Uh, And Mrs May really said, I want to push forward with the NCP, the new customs partnership, because it's the only way to maintain a soft border in Ireland, yet leave the customs union. And the committee said no. Yes, that is exactly what happened. And you've explained it beautifully, Seb, and it is the most convoluted topic. But the bottom line is that Mrs May wanted customs partnership. Uh, Her officials, Ollie Robbins, Jeremy Hayward, had thrown their weight behind it completely. And Cabinet Committee on Wednesday did not give it the green light. And that has created a really quite serious problem for Mrs May in the Brexit trajectory. The key point about customs partnership is it basically was a way to try and peel off this brewing rebellion by pro-European Conservatives between about 17 and 20 who could defeat the government on the question of whether the British should remain in a customs union. These rebels want the British to stay in a customs union. Mrs May has said very clearly that she wants the UK to leave and customs partnership was a way through. And Sajid Javid played an important role in creating this lack of decision, the best gloss that one could put on it on Wednesday. It leaves Mrs May in a really serious bind. How is she going to press ahead with this critical question? What's going to happen with this vote? Because the two crucial figures in that committee, George, were Gavin Williamson, the Defence Secretary, also put into a big job by Theresa May quite recently in Sajid Javid, who were interestingly both former Remainers, but they have become newly discovered Brexiters and are both talking about optimistic visions and what have you. And Sajid Javid, I think, made it quite clear in a couple of tweets that he was not in favour of this customs partnership. So Reed Theresa May has got about five days before the Cabinet meets again to come up with some kind of compromise to try and get people around to her partnership. Because... If they don't, it's hard to see where it goes up next. It's all, how do you see it playing out from here? Well, there's a cavernous gap between the two wings of the Conservative Party on this customs issue. And the customs partnership was a a rickety kind of rope bridge she built across this chasm, which has now been dynamited by the Eurosceptics. And there's a huge problem. You know, given the fact this proposal has been worked on for months by civil servants, it's very hard to see how you were going to be able to find a middle way between the two options or come up with a completely new idea in a matter of days or maybe weeks if she pushes it down the road a bit further. What she could do, it's a high-risk strategy, is basically say, look, this is the only policy that unite both sides of the party. It offers you the advantages of a customs union that you have frictionless trade with the EU, and we can still run our own trade policy. It may not be perfect, the technology may not be there, but it's the only thing that will get us through Parliament. And she could say to the Eurosceptics, if you don't back this, the alternative is there'll be a vote in Parliament, either in May or in the autumn, or when I come back with the final deal, well, Parliament will make the decision for us, and they will say, right, we're going to stay in a customs union. So the choice is this. You either have my compromise, which gives you an independent trade policy alongside a customs union, if it ever works, or Parliament forces us to stay in a customs union. You won't like that. She could do that. She could take the proposal to the full cabinet, where I think she would have a majority, because the cabinet includes more people who are loyal to Theresa May and more Remainers. And she could force the issue and challenge the Eurosceptics to basically bring her down. 
We've basically, James, got two beings in this whole debate which appear immovable. And at some point, one of them is going to have to Blake. One is the Eurosceptics, George, we're talking about. Because everything to do with the short term of Brexit, they've sort of accepted the compromises, the money, the transition. Because they have their eye on this goal, which is independent Britain setting its free trade bodies, as you might want to say, taking back control. On the other side, which we often forget in the British debate, is the European Commission, which has got some very clear lines and negotiating mandates and it has not deviated one iota from them during the Brexit process. They have ruled out both the customs partnership and maximum facilitation as a solution to the Northern Ireland problem. So no matter what the cabinet says, Brussels is going to say no, is it not? Well, I think there's a difference between the two. You're absolutely right. And David Davis admitted this at the Lord's Committee this week. There has been pushback on both of those options. But where there is real, real pushback actually is on Max FAC. I mean, the problem with the maximum facilitation is it really doesn't deal with the problem of the Northern Ireland board, doesn't claim to at all, uh, because it's effectively, um, it doesn't go the whole hog on that, basically. And so I think although Customs Partnership is a very ambitious proposal, Ollie Robbins and his team do see it as a way of basically offering a completely frictionless border. Now, I think it will be very difficult. The one thing I think Mrs May can't afford to do, I personally think, is delayed beyond June. I mean, I think there is some talk about the possibility of having the critical vote on these issues in October. But at the June Council, the Irish are making very, very clear that they want to have the issue of the Northern Ireland border dealt with once and for all. And so before she gets to that point, I think Mrs May has, within the British political context, got to resolve this question of which of these two options is she going for, or are we going to stay in the customs union completely? I I don't think that she can delay beyond the June Council. And then, George, that all plays into her domestic position as well, because the ERG, which is the European Research Group, who, again, we spend a lot of time talking about, which is the, the sort of the caucus of 60 to 70 Tory MPs who are very diehard Brexit supporters, they sent a letter to Downing Street outlining why they are against the new customs partnership. And it was briefed out to um, the Daily Telegraph this week that if she betrays them or resigns or goes to the customs partnership or even full customs union, then they will withdraw support from her government. Is that an empty threat? My guess is yes, although you can never tell in the febrile state of the Conservative Party when Europe is the issue at hand, because you have to work this through. If they bring Theresa May down and they get their 48 letters into the chairman of the 1922 Backbench Committee and there's a leadership contest, there are two possible consequences of that. One is you end up with a more Eurosceptic Prime Minister. Michael Gove, say, for example. For example, who will face exactly the same problems in managing Parliament as Theresa May, and probably more so because he'd be trying to go down a more right-wing route. Or you end up with someone who's less Eurosceptic than Theresa May, in which case the whole manoeuvre would have backfired. And then, of course, there's the danger that you cause so much chaos you bring down the whole government and then you risk losing Brexit altogether. So those are the calculations you have to make. So just as we read in the papers about ministers threatening to resign or Eurosceptics threatening to bring down Theresa May, there's a big difference between threatening to do something and actually doing it. But, you know, people do strange things when it comes to Europe and the Conservative Party, as we've seen through many decades. It seems to me, James, that what we're really working through is the result of what happened in last year's election, which was Theresa May had a vision for Brexit, which was outlined in the Conservative Manifesto, which was a clean break with the bloc. But the fact is the numbers in Parliament aren't there, no matter how many ways you square it, how many compromises you get. The fact is the vision she wanted 
MPs will not back that vision and Europe will not back the vision she's put out there now. So it really is a complete mess at the moment. Yes, I think that is broadly it. I mean, if you go back through the whole story going back to the referendum, the critical set of mistakes that was made by Mrs May was at the October Party Conference in 2016, two or three months after she became Prime Minister, where she set out really hard red lines on a range of issues. Not in a customs union or the customs union, not in the single market, not under ECJ jurisdiction. And the entire story of British policy since then has been about very, very severable and clever civil servants like Ollie Robbins trying to work out convoluted compromises that somehow meet what she said, work within what she said, but at the same time are realistic in terms of what the EU would accept and what is in the interests of the British economy. And so we have these two quite extraordinarily complicated concepts that we've been talking about for months. One of them is managed divergence, the three baskets, which is an extremely complicated concept by which we're effectively given preferential access to the single market in some areas and not. And then the second one, which you've tried valiantly to explain, which is the customs partnership. And they're both extremely convoluted, very technical, and lots of people, especially in Brussels, say they simply won't work and are unicorns. And And that's the problem with British policy. And just to illustrate how bizarre this situation has become, that at this cabinet meeting we were talking about just a second ago, you had the Prime Minister on one side of the argument with her chief Brexit official, and on the other side of the argument, the Secretary of State for Brexit, the minister in charge of delivering the process, at odds on the single most important issue facing the country. It's an incredible situation. It is profoundly embarrassing for the UK. And that's it for this week's episode. If you want even more Brexit chat, check out our Brexit Unspun podcast. In this week's episode, Shona Jolly QC, barrister at Cloister Chambers, talks with the FT's Barney Thompson about the threat to our equality, human rights and employment laws posed by Britain's departure from the EU. Thanks to George, James, Miranda and Jim for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening. The inexorable rise of China, the changing nature of work, the future of liberal capitalism, the power of Silicon Valley, the world of artificial intelligence. Join Gideon Rachman, Sarah O'Connor, Martin Wolf, Rana Faruha and John Thornhill as they explore some of the most significant questions of our age in a new podcast, The FT Big Picture. To listen and subscribe, visit ft.com slash podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.